Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, Elise Mitchell. Elise is a three-time founder, executive coach, and consultant with more than 25 years of experience steering companies through complex business and leadership challenges. She leverages her high growth expertise on both sides of the boardroom, coaching C-suite leaders to help them navigate change, consulting VC private equity firms and their portfolio companies, chairing a Tiger 21 cohort for high net worth entrepreneurs and executives, and serving as an independent board director. And she is also soon to be my neighbor down the street. If you're, when that happens, right, the construction Nowadays is a moving target, so. Indeed, if we ever get in, yes, we'll look forward to this. <laughs> we'll look forward to passing by on the same street. So we met through Tiger, which, you know, we know a lot of the same folks there. It's an incredible organization. I was intrigued. You're running this next cohort, which we're going to get into. But especially in that world, we had lunch and your story was just so interesting to me, how complex it was. And so... Maybe as we kind of, we're going to get into the whole background, but there is this kind of theme that plays out through your story of kind of leading through change, embracing change, kind of not exploiting, but taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves, even though it might be uncomfortable, transition. And you put this really well when we did our pre-call and the notes, looking through the turn, which is kind of your mantra. So we'd love to maybe start there to help set the tone for the conversation. I'm so happy to to do that. Thank you, Brian. It has been a journey of of learning and change for me, I'm sure for everybody. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time in my life. I was my my background as an entrepreneur. I built a company, was fortunate enough to be able to exit that. And we can get into that story later. But the but the heart of what you were asking about that I think is so was so meaningful for me was one of my greatest life lessons was this idea of how how to 
make the journey matter in your life and leadership and in your business. Make the journey matter. I was one of those types of leaders, and probably a lot of people are. I would consider myself a destination leader, all very focused on getting to there, wherever there was. And once I got to there, I wanted to get to the next one and the next, the next, the next. Very driven leader. As an entrepreneur, that sort of led to, not surprisingly, a, a workaholism that was really, I think, not unexpected for an entrepreneur building a company, but it became so detrimental to the rest of my life. You know, everything looks really good on the outside when you're an entrepreneur and your business is growing and successful, but in the inside, in your personal daily life, it can all be falling apart. And I remember my couple of my key leaders in my office actually did a bit of an intervention with me and my husband too, <laughs> saying, you know, what has happened to you? Where did you go? The person that we all know and love, we still love you, but nobody likes you very much because all you think about is work and you're just so driven. And I remember thinking to myself, I know I need to change, but I don't know how. And it, lots of that went into all that, of course. But in this kitchen table conversation with my husband, we both looked at each other and said, we haven't been on a vacation together in years. Because, of course, my belief was, well, my business can't survive without me for a single day. So why would you possibly think about taking a vacation? And he was building his career, too. And long story short, you know, when you're planning a, a vacation with a loved one, it's usually a bit of more of a negotiation than anything. And in a moment of insanity, I agreed to get on the back of his motorcycle and take a 10-day trip. Now, he was an avid sports car motorcycle person. I had never been on the back of his bike. But I will tell you, Brian, I got on the back of his bike for that trip and I never looked back. I was hooked on motorcycling. It was the most amazing way to travel. Anybody that's been on two wheels like that knows it is the best. It is, you know, the sights, the sounds, the smells. It's just so intoxicating. And I remember coming back from that trip and my husband looked at me and he said, you were meant to ride. I said, yes, on the back of your bike. He said, no, on your own. And so on a Friday night, not longer than that, I found myself in a motorcycle dealership listening to Big Mike, our instructor, who looked just exactly like you can imagine with a black leather vest and tattoos, teaching us about motorcycling for the motorcycle safety course. And in the middle of that evening, he said something that made us all sit up and take notice. He said, I'm going to teach you something that will save your life. The most dangerous place you can be on the road is in an intersection for obvious reasons. The next most dangerous place is in a turn. I remember thinking, why a turn? Why on a motorcycle? Why is that such a big deal? Well, in the turn of a road is usually where a lot of hazards gather, like rocks, oil slicks, potholes, those sorts of things that make your bike slide, not to mention the trajectory of the turn itself, which you have to navigate, or you end up in the ditch, or worse, you end up in the oncoming lane. So neither is good. And so he said, this is what you need to know. As you approach a turn, you look into it, you assess the potential hazards that, that are there, but you, and you make a plan for how you're going to adjust around them using your instincts and experience to sort of make that plan. But you don't stare straight into the turn. If you do, there's actually a name for that. It's called target fixation. If you do stare straight in the turn, that's where you'll go because your bike follows your eyes. So he said, here's the key. You look into the turn, keep an eye on the road in front of you, make a plan for all the hazards and how to get around them. But you keep your other eye focused on where you want to end up. And he said, it's called looking through the turn. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is like the greatest metaphor for business in life of how to navigate the uncertainty of a journey, how not to become so fixated on all the potential problems that are in front of you to keep your eyes focused on where you want to end up. It's called looking through the turn. And I'll tell you, Brian, it just, it became my mantra, as you said a minute ago, it really became my mantra. It made me think entirely differently about how I was running my business, how I was running my life. 
and how I thought to myself, man, I know I'm a destination leader, but how do I enjoy the ride more? Like, how do I make the journey matter? Because actually, when you ride a motorcycle, you're really not riding to get anywhere. You ride to ride, which to me was a very foreign concept. (laughs) But it made so much sense to me about the journey of entrepreneurship, the journey of leadership, the journey of wealth, all of the things in life that we struggle to navigate, how you can become more comfortable with the twists and turns of life and how we can navigate complexity. That kind of gives you a sort of sense of how it all happened for me and how that metaphor became so powerful for how I really basically changed my life pretty dramatically from there on. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible metaphor. And there's so much to unpack there in terms of your story. And I like this idea of the motorcycle requiring balance and thoughtfulness, but it's also experiential, right? And it's not just about the destination. So I I think it's all kind of terrific. I would love to start with kind of the things that you reference, which is leadership, entrepreneurship, wealth. Because when you think about kind of who you are and what you do, your involvement as an entrepreneur with an exit, you're involved with Tiger 21, is that wealth component. And your kind of day job today is helping leaders lead, right? So I'd love to start there, maybe applying this metaphor to your own journey through entrepreneurship, all the way through the liquidity event that you had, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think you navigated it well? There are things that you would maybe do differently in the heat of the moment. It's very challenging to to really unpack all. Oh, yes. Beautifully put, the way you sort of organized all that. It was, yeah, I suppose the, the first part of my life story as a as a professional was the entrepreneurial journey. And I didn't know I was going to become an entrepreneur. I, I thought I might be a corporate executive of some kind. But, you know, that's, again, sort of one of the lessons you learn about being opportunistic. We the way I started my company is we ended up moving to Northwest Arkansas, which my, I always say my husband drug me there kicking and screaming because I'm a big city gal. But of course, it turned out to be the most amazing place to live and to work because it is the home of companies people might have heard of, Walmart, Tyson, J.B. Hunt, and now over a thousand vendor companies that serve those organizations. And it became such a tremendous opportunity for me to be an entrepreneur but like most entrepreneurs, I was, I would call myself a master craftsman at what I did. I was a public relations and marketing professional. So I thought I was the best at that, but had no clue how to run and build a business, certainly not to scale a, a company. And so it was always this sense of figuring it out as you go, which at many times put you in kind of a dark place. As a leader, people I remember would literally run into my office, wringing their hands and say, Elise, Elise, we have this problem. What are we going to do? And I would sit there thinking, I have no idea what to do right now. But I think I'm supposed to know because like I'm the leader here. I'm the founder. If I don't know, who knows? And that was that sort of dark moment of, wow, I don't know if I can really do this or not. I think many entrepreneurs, certainly a lot of the clients I work with today, this is very common. And the key lesson I took during those years was it's okay to say you don't know. But you can't end the sentence there. You must do whatever it takes to find out. And really, the very best leaders say, hey, isn't this going to be an interesting challenge? Aren't we going to learn so much? And I need you to help me learn and figure out what is right and best for us. Because we can look around and learn from others and benchmark others and get great consultants to help us. But it's still up to us to figure out what's right and best for our organization. So it became a chance to be comfortable not knowing, and but more importantly, to role model being a learning leader. And again, had no idea I was doing this at the moment, but when I looked back on it over time, I thought, oh, you know, 
that served us well because it gave permission for everybody else on my team to raise their hand and say, well, I don't really know either, but I want to learn. So can I come on the learning journey? And this actually gave us permission to do a lot of things and do a lot of innovation experiments, try new things. Some of them didn't work out very well at all. Some of them were absolute home runs. You know, you sort of look at that too and say, if I don't create that culture of try, if you will, that's what I used to think of it as how do I create a culture of try? So people are not afraid to try and to bring forward things. And that really starts with you as a leader getting comfortable with not knowing, but knowing you'll figure it out as you go. I want to, you know, get into the reference you made towards workaholism. Mm -hmm. You know, as an entrepreneur myself, I've got two boys who are 10 and seven. And the, the part of the problem with being an entrepreneur, I think one of the biggest problems is there's never an ending, right? Like the tsunami never ends. There's always another deal. There's always more business to win. There's always more growth to be had. And this concept of complacency is something that entrepreneurs really fear quite a bit, right? At the same time, I think we've all become more cognizant of this recently. You can't sustain that type of lifestyle very long without blowing up your personal life. I think you fell into this trap. I fall into this trap. If somebody listening is maybe in that world, but they don't realize that they've been captured by this concept, what are some of the things that finally made you realize I need to reassess this and reevaluate? And maybe how do you work with your clients to get them to understand you can still work hard, but you don't necessarily have to destroy yourself doing it. Mm. Oh, there's so much to that. And so many mistakes I made, so many lessons I learned. I do see it as a very common problem with entrepreneurs. Because I think for me, I used to always tell my husband, well, I've got to ride that gravy train as long as I've got it. Because what if it goes away? What if that client walks away, fires us? You know, here we are growing. We actually, we had this a period of rapid growth. We grew over 500% in five years, which is funny. It kind of happened in the 2008, 2009 time period is when it all started for us. It was very odd in a lot of ways, but I kept, I was operating a, a bit out of fear and that sort of scarcity mindset, but it's, it's all going to go away at some point. So I can't afford, I have to always say yes. I can't afford to turn away an opportunity. And so it does become all-consuming. I used to think about work, work at work, no matter where I was. And I used to think Sunday afternoons, after church and lunch and all that was my time to sit down and get a jump on the week. But the problem was it ended up being like a six-hour jump on the week that would take me into the evenings and, you know, there went your Sunday. And so where was the time for family or or your own health and well-being? And so part of that, I think, too, Brian, led me to sort of that deeper existential question about where you find your self-worth and how you define your self-identity, your self-worth, where you find meaning and purpose in life. And it is very easy when you're good at work to be at work all the time, whether you're there physically or mentally or emotionally, because frankly, work is easy. If you're good at it, work is the safe place to be. Work is where it's predictable. It's where you're in charge. It's where you're in control. You feel much more in control. You have a, an MO of how you, you operate and how you navigate things. It's the messy personal part of our lives that is super hard. Being a mom of teenage children, being married, being a daughter to parents, being part of a community, being a friend. Those are the parts of your life you're like, yeah, yeah, it's always going to be there, but I don't know if this will. So that can wait. 
And I remember one poignant moment, my daughter actually did competitive cheer. You know, a lot of young people do competitive sports of some kind. Our son was competitive in sports as well, but competitive cheer. And I remember when I drive her to these competitions and spend all weekend on the stands and driving home late at night on Sunday nights, the glow of the dashboard lights in our car was when she actually would talk to me, Brian. (laughs) As a teenage girl, I rarely was able to get those golden moments of when she would open up and ask me questions about how do you know when you love somebody? How do you know if you're going to heaven? What's important in life? And like, I realized this sort of safe bubble of that glow of the dashboard lights and the darkness of the night sky. This is when the moments of connection happened with my daughter. And I would think about that later. Wow, what if I'd had my headphones on or we'd been listening to music or I'd been talking on the phone? I would not have been able to hear my daughter's voice when she was calling for me. And I thought, that's another way of thinking about how am I listening to the different voices in my life and being able to not tune them out because I'm so distracted and so busy with work. But if I am I calm enough to hear and listen and then lean into those voices and move into that part of your life that might need you for whatever period of time, it's not forever. But neither should we only be listening and leaning into our work forever, because that's when you said that treadmill goes on and we can't ever turn it off. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, men, especially to your point, work is the easy part, right? You know the rules, especially if you're the the boss, right? You, you dictate the games that get played. And it's a very, very simple way to escape the realities of your life and the messy parts of your life and to mute out those emotions and just immerse yourself into work. But the I think the, the flip side of that is, I think the way that you're approaching life through the motorcycle metaphor, it ultimately makes you a better leader, I would think, if you're actually a human being and not purely just this kind of working robot, right? There was, I remember our team had this sort of phrase for me, there was pre-motorcycling Elise and there was post-motorcycling Guess which one they liked better. Definitely, because it was a one, I had a hobby now, a challenging, interesting, engaging ho- hobby. Something like motorcycling is also, of course, quite dangerous. So it's very mind clearing and mind consuming because you have to be very, very focused. So we pushed to the outward parts of your, th- your thoughts, anything that was not related to, I need to stay alive because I'm going 65 miles down the road and there's concrete <laughs> underneath me. <laughs> And there might be a car that's turning, you know, all of the danger, but that also brings you very much alive. And so anything, I would say, any hobby that you love, and this is a great question to challenge ourselves with as leaders is, when's the last time you really engaged fully in something that you love and you did it just for the doing of it, not to accomplish something? Because that was, the, like I said earlier, you ride, in most of you ride just to ride, not to get somewhere. And that was such a new concept to me, but it it brought home the sense of it's, as you said earlier, it's, it's an experience. It's how we live life in, in a state where we feel more alive and we reach that state of flow a lot of times, whether it's painting or if it's an act, if you're an exercise person and you love to run, I've always been a lifelong runner. So that's always been a way that I would get and stay in flow is just go for a run. And if all of a sudden I come back and I had... 10 ideas for some way to solve a problem. But there's there's a lot to the brain about that, a lot of neuroscience behind gauging in these activities that take us away from work, 
that then actually make us show up far more effectively as a whole person that enjoys the journey more. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. So using that experience that you had and working with the clients that you do now, how do you effectively push that idea onto these hard charging entrepreneurs, right? Because everyone's got a different thing. Not everyone's going to want to be a runner or do motorcycling. I think your point about being in a state of fear is, is very real, right? We all have competitors. We, we, it's very challenging. If you're an entrepreneur, kind of like myself, you think that you're the one driving revenue. And if you're not working, the company's not moving forward without you. So how do you actually like coach these people to, to live like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So when I pivoted what I'm doing now, I, I did go through some coaching training and learned a lot about neuroscience. And my parents were both college professors in science. And so I have kind of an interest in neuroscience naturally from sitting at the kitchen table with my parents for all those years growing up. I find it fascinating to think about how the brain works and how we how our thought process works and that we sort of wire ourselves to think and hold certain beliefs about if I I can't take a vacation because my company won't succeed without me, or if I don't have this very successful business, what are people going to think about me? And so we have these sort of limiting beliefs that kind of hold us back and put us in a bit of a box. For example, I would have clients that I would start working with. They would say, well, but my mother said I needed to, or I would never amount to anything, or but my husband, it was always these sort of belief, this belief system that we come into the conversation with that has, is this story we've told ourselves, which may or may not be a true story. <laughs> it may be a perception that we have. It may be a fear that we have. It might be a, a hope or a dream that we have. No right or wrong about stories, but stopping for a minute to have the self-awareness to step back and say, what is the story I am telling myself? Is it serving me well? That's one of the first questions I ask. Hey, tell me, tell me your story. How's that working for you? Would you like to write a different story? (laughs) And most would say, well, yeah, you know, if I could, the story I would write for myself would be this. And the point there is when you are willing to open up your mind to possibility, Like, oh, well, if I didn't buy into this belief or if I wasn't holding myself back because I'm afraid of whatever, well, gosh, the life I would live would look like this. And that open, we call that sort of the toward mindset. The away mindset is I'm moving away from fear. I'm, I feel threat. So I'm, I'm in a defensive mindset. The toward mindset is I'm moving toward a conversation. I'm moving toward a relationship. I'm moving toward an opportunity, as you alluded to earlier. Being opportunistic is a big part of being an entrepreneur, seeing potential. And that's the key really for us as leaders is how do I open my mind up to see what's possible for me and for the life I want? And what what story would I write if I could write a different story from here going forward? What is the next chapter going to look like? And hey, guess what? I'm the author of that story. I write whatever I want. I want to apply that with kind of overlaying that concept of asking yourself these questions with your own journey. I think a lot of people listening 
are contemplating a liquidity event or going through a private equity recapitalization or selling the business or some in some form or fashion, based on your own experience. And now that you're on the other side and you help people coach through this, like if you're trying to navigate that decision, like what are the questions to ask yourself to go about? It's a very big decision to make. It's a turning point for a lot of things in your life. So how do you how do you even begin to ask those questions? Yeah, that's I remember very distinctly a couple of pivot points, which I do think you're right. Pivots and managing through transitions, something I'm hearing and seeing a lot these days. I think it's challenging for anybody, even the most successful people, is to think about navigating those those changes, those transitions, and knowing when it's time to pivot. So, for example, when I went when I went to sell my company, as you asked about. Specifically, I I was one of those entrepreneurs. I said, I have the greatest job in the world, best clients, great culture, great team. I make great, great money. Like, why would I ever sell? What would that do for me? I didn't, I didn't ever think that I would sell. But of course, as you learn in life, you never say never. There's always opportunity. And one of the things I did ask myself is, what am I, I'm not even taking these conversations with people that are trying to reach out to us about buying us. I need to take a conversation. That's always the, the first thing I tell my clients who are considering selling when this when they're ready to sell. As I said, take every conversation because you're going to learn a lot. You might learn about what you don't want, right? It doesn't look like this. It shouldn't be that. I can't live with this. And then you'll begin just sort of like dating. Then you begin to know when that person walks in your life. You're like, yep, he's the one. <laughs> you do have a better sense of it because you've done your homework. And so so a big part of that for me is go on that learning journey to see what it might look like to sell, never say never, and then begin to imagine what it could be like on the other side. Because for my clients who I, I do a lot of consulting on M&A work to help them get ready to sell and then go through a sale. And then I always say, now the hard work begins. <laughs> Congratulations on the, the sale day. That is the day when all the work now begins because it's so hard from there. But it doesn't have to be all bad. It can actually be quite good. You can elevate your skills to a whole nother level. Certainly that, that happened for me. We began to work. We were already doing national work with a lot of our clients. Now we were doing international work because we sold to one of the big four international holding companies in the marketing communication space. And we had offices in New York and Chicago by then. We were, I was reporting into Tokyo for a period of time and then London. And so you just think about it. the world is really your oyster at that point in time, no matter who you sell to, you have opened up your world to new people, new relationships, new opportunities to learn and grow from other colleagues, and frankly, to hone your skills. Because when you're the boss, you can kind of do things the way you want. When you are part of a larger organization, you have to level up. And that was great for me and certainly for my team. They were already super smart and sharp, but we all went up another level in terms of being able to navigate international business and different cultures and customs and, you know, all of the intricacies of being a part of a, of a global organization. It's a fascinating time. So you have to kind of go in with that mindset of it's going to be different. I'm going to learn a lot, you know, sort of like the same, boy, this is going to be an interesting adventure. Think of all we're going to learn. It will have its ups and downs. But in the end, I think there will be something better for us for having made the transaction. And of course, now I sit on the other side of it several years past. I have a whole different life now. And I've done a lot of work with clients on sort of the pivot. You know, how do I plan that pivot where I sort of jump off the cliff to go to another life? If I'm not doing this, like what, what else would I do and who would I be? And would people 
like me, respect me, want to work with me if I am not the founder and CEO of fill in the blank company, which that was a big thing for me is I realized I had tied so much of my identity up into my company. And the good news I realized was I walked out the door when I left and I took all of that knowledge and wisdom and expertise with me and it was okay. I, I still love and cheer my company on. It's doing very well under my successor's leadership now, thankfully, but, but it's okay. I don't really miss running a big business anymore. I'm very happy to be pouring into other leaders and doing the work that I'm doing now. But just, you know, it's a different. I, I, I like the way framing the conversation of just your mindset right? It's, it's not losing your company. It's gaining access to a larger platform to improve your skills. I think so much of it is that story we tell ourselves and how we frame these things in our minds. It dictates how we feel about these big choices. To get a little bit deeper into your own story, when did you know it was time to leave? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I just distinctly remember that day. I was I was laying in bed in a hotel room in New York. I pretty much had been awake all night. A big deal, an M and A deal. I had been putting working on together for a year and a half. Fell apart at the last minute for reasons on the other side. It was and I just thought to myself, I had been doing this. I I've been doing M and A work with our parent company for about five years at that point in time. And I thought, you know, I could keep doing this, and it's fascinating work. It's very interesting. I love thinking strategically and trying to figure out how to put the the puzzle pieces together of deals. But I thought, this is not really my best strengths. It's not my greatest talents. And, and so I asked myself two questions at that moment in time. I thought, if I'm not doing this, what am I doing instead? First question I asked myself is, okay, gosh, let me think for a minute. Over the last several years, what was the happiest day of my work life? What was I doing? Who was I with? Where was I? What was happening in the room? What were the skills and talents and strengths I was using? What was, why did I feel so happy and so rewarded by that? And I had one day that came to mind immediately. I knew who I was with, what I was doing, how it felt. It was so palpable to me. I thought, how do I get more days like this? That was the first question. And then the second question was sort of a deeper one. And it was, well, you know, there are a lot of things I can do because at this point in my career, I had done a lot. I'd swept the floors and locked the doors in the early days of building a company all the way up to navigating sale and then being on the buyer's side of the table for many years. It's been a long journey, a lot of interesting things. So I can do a lot of things. What should I do? What is my greatest contribution to the universe at this stage of my career? It was a, such a different question to ask because, again, it's not what can you do because you can do lots and lots of things. What should you do that would have the greatest impact? And to one of the questions you asked earlier is like, how do I have that guiding, that North Star, that guiding belief in my mind of why I do what I do and what is my purpose and meaning for my work? And that was huge for me because I would be honest and say, I think one of my greatest values through most of my career as a professional was achievement, accomplishment, goal orientation, driving for results. Absolutely. One of my strengths and one of my values. This stage of my life, I realized it wasn't so much that anymore because I had been blessed to have a lot of achievements. It was now it was impact. And it, that was such an eye opener for me as I thought, man, I want to help other leaders to be the best version of themselves. I want to help other entrepreneurs just as I had, you know, trusted conciliaries, you know, great advisors who whispered in my ear and made me smarter and helped me make better decisions. I thought I want to be that for the next generation of entrepreneurs. Because it is lonely and it is scary out there when you are a founder 
And there's so much at stake, especially when you scale. You don't want to make a mistake that would hurt yourself, your family, or your people. And so you need good help, people who have walked that path before you. And that's when I thought, I think I want to coach and consult with founders and help them navigate that path of growth to sale and and purpose and meaning and significance in their life. Yeah, it's powerful and a great segue for how I want to end the conversation about your work with Tiger. And for some people listening, this might not make a lot of sense, but given your background and then the story, how did you manage through the wealth aspect of it? Like mm -hmm. all of a sudden you've got this pile of money, you worked really hard for it, but I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that have had liquidity events and there is a sense of loss or sadness often associated with this transaction, which should be this, everyone else from the outside is saying, you have nothing to complain about, but for a lot of people, it feels like the race is over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's and it's not it's it's not as satisfying or fulfilling as they always hoped. Yeah, absolutely. And I I always say to my clients, especially now the ones I work with who are trying to go through the same part of that journey, is I say, don't run from from something, run to something. So it is so important that you think through what is next in life, so you don't have this deep sense of sadness and loss. And yes, I've. I remember the day that I actually was my final, final day was midnight on December 31st, 2019. I was watching Keith Urban doing the Nashville, you know, the New Year's Eve live. And I had my work laptop open and then I had my personal laptop open. And I, I had been moving my personal files to my personal laptop for some time. Certainly not, not work products, but anything personal. And like 1201 or 1202, you know, the clock ticks. And I looked at my work laptop and this this little spinning ball goes, goodbye. <laughs> and it shut me off. And I remember just staring with this sense of, how could they do this? I built these companies. Now they've come up, which of course, we'd been planning this for six months. You know, I totally knew it was coming. But the emotional separation, Brian, that was what hit me like a ton of bricks. And it took me a few days before I actually had to sit down and just have a, a good long cry to myself. And I finally verbalized it. Like, what was I feeling? And I said, it's such a loss because it is the ending of a huge part of my life. That was so powerful for me to actually, you know, shut the tears to say, wow, it's a loss. But then it was getting up out of that chair to say, and what is next? And that's the whole point of having something to run to is that you want to think about now there's new meaning and purpose in my life. What am I going to do to be a good steward of this? And that's what led me to Tiger was the sense of I wanted, I've always felt like I wanted to be a good steward of my company. Now what was I going to be a good steward of? My family, my talents, my opportunities, my clients, certainly any of the, any wealth that we had been blessed with and how do you navigate the stewardship factor? That's where I think Tiger 21 is magic because Tiger 21 to me is all about navigating that wealth journey, but it's honing your stewardship skills to embrace the richness of life, whatever that looks like to you. Whether it's spend it all, whether it's give it all away, whether it's invest it and grow it, whether it's use it to further a cause or further a new business opportunity or whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. But it is embracing a sense of stewardship and having clarity about, hey, I was really very good at this in my business life. I built a company. I was, I was successfully able to do that with the help of many people around me, but I learned a lot. 
how do I now turn my attention to being a good steward of my life and the assets that I have? And that, frankly, I think is where a lot of entrepreneurs sort of wake up and go, mm, I didn't ever really do that. <laughs> I was so busy building my company. And as you said, now all of a sudden I'm at this turning point in my life. I have no idea what to do now. And Tiger gives you that clarity of purpose. It gives you that trusted community of other people who are navigating a wealth journey. Brilliant people sitting in the room alongside you. Every time I'm in a tiger room, I'm confident I am not the smartest person in the room. I'm there to learn, there to grow, there to help other people because I know they will help me when I need it and I will help them when they need it. And we're all there to really hone our stewardship skills and figure out what's next for us and how to you know, move from success to significance, as as we've often heard before. Yeah, that's well put. My question for you is, how do you, as the kind of cohort or moderator, I use YPO terms, how do you manage some of these personalities? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it must be, there must be some challenges there with this population that we're, we're discussing. Actually, so it's a great question. I actually Thanks. built a second business for about 10 years in the coaching, facilitation, and training business with a very good friend of mine, who I'm happy to say is still a very good friend of mine. We built it. We sold that business. And when I was trying to pivot, answering those two questions in my life, that was where it led me, was this idea of coaching and training and facilitation. I had done quite a bit of that, even actually in my own agency, a lot of facilitation working with C-suite executives pretty, pretty regularly. And so that was, that was never something that I... I ever worried about. I felt very comfortable in that space because I think the skill, right, the skill of facilitation is really an art to be able to own a room, to lead a room, but not to be the room. The room is the participants. The room are the, is the members. And so one of the nice things about Tiger 21 is we have, we have chairs. We have people who are facilitators. They're there to, to put the meeting together, to put the agenda together, to facilitate the conversation, to make sure all voices are heard. And I, I have never yet been in a, in a Tire 21 meeting where I have not felt there was richness and depth in the conversation and robust debate, <laughs> which I think is a tribute to the people who are at the table. Lots of different points of view, but a tremendous amount of respect. Everybody in the room to be heard and everybody's opinion to be heard. You might not choose to follow it, but you can appreciate where somebody else is coming from. Yeah. Well, I have no doubt that you run those meetings very tightly. So good for you. And it's a lot of work. It's, it's not as significant. It's a great organization. Elisa, I want to thank you so much for coming. This has been terrific. For our listeners, please do leave us a comment, a rating. Let us know the favorite part of the conversation we've had. If people are interested in learning more about the work that you do as a coach, or maybe they want to learn more about Tiger, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So my website, elisemitchell.com, just my name, very simple. They can go there, they can email me there, or they could email me at elise at elisemitchell.com, either way. And I love to connect with people, so I hope people will feel free to reach out. And a question that we ask folks to come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your lives? Love that question. Something I coach a lot of my clients on. There's one thing that I do every morning that is really useful it's, I just call it a moment of gratitude. It's when I wake up morning and I look up at, at the, the, the light fixture in our bedroom, I always think about that metaphor of light. Like, what is, how do I shine the spotlight on something I am grateful for in my life right now in this moment? And it could be anything. It could be I'm grateful for my dog or I'm grateful for 
how I feel when I'm rested or it could be I'm grateful for my health. Or I'm grateful for my husband or whatever it may be. But it's just that idea of the moment of gratitude starts the mind into that toward or that positive state of mind before your feet have been hit the floor. You're like, you know what? I'm blessed. Life is good. I have a lot to be thankful for. Love it. Great answer. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for taking the time to chat with us. It's been great to get to know you. It's always fun to have somebody in my backyard to come on the show. So best of luck with Tiger, with the journey, with the house. And I hope to see you on Time Boulevard on your motorcycle soon. Sounds great. Thank you for having me, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 